On the genre equality channel, I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. Uh, and this week we are gonna get a little claustrophobic with uh, <laughs> some of our greatest stories um, set entirely within a single location or a single room, more accurately. Yep. Um, we'll be covering four different things uh, from movies to TV shows. Um, there is the riveting uh, jury debate in Sydney Lumet's. Uh, classic 12 Angry Men. Mm-hmm. There is a Danish thriller about a police emergency phone operator in The Guilty. Uh, there is Alfred Hitchcock's voyeuristic mystery in Rear Window. Uh, and finally, we'll be talking about HBO's uh, very creative, very inventive motel room anthology uh, called Room 104. Mm. Uh, and through all of these various things, we would like to talk about how these basically these compact uh, economical uh, chamber dramas um, can ring maximum emotional um, resonance from minimal space, you know. Um, and of course, there there are a ton of great single location movies out there, la, and and we can't be talking about all of them, la, so yeah. I mean, Like, uh, are there any ones that besides the, our our four main topics that you like to shout out before you know um... before we get into it? I, I, we are kind of, okay with the exception of Guilty which was fairly recent and Room 104 which is kind of ongoing uh, you know I, I think Real Window and 12 Angry Men are like de facto you know cl- classics right like some mm-hmm. of the best movies ever made yep. Um, but like more recent history I guess Phone Booth was pretty good mm-hmm. uh, last time yeah. Colin Farrell yeah. Colin Farrell was pretty good Um, I think when it came out what's that Jodie Foster one on the plane uh, oh I forgot that one but yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, the Jodie Foster one on plane. Like, it was not bad. You know, it's not bad, you know. Like, not, nothing near the realm of, of the guilty or rear window for that matter. But, like, it was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, Does Panic Room count? Panic Room sort of counts, uh, but, like, half the movie also takes place, you know, on the outside, the people breaking in and stuff like that. So that it doesn't, is true. It doesn't count too much. Right? And, and I do understand the four, the four things we picked out. Like, there are individual brief scenes on the outside, but 99.9% of the film or TV shows takes place in the room. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I think, like, we'll, we'll dive deeper into that, especially with Rear Window. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of expands upon the idea of chamber drama. It's not exactly that, right? It's not the same kind of chamber drama in the way that 12 Angry Men or Room 104 is chamber drama. Yeah, uh, I, I, I do agree. Um. A few years ago, um, in 2014, one of my favorite movies of that year was a Tom Hardy vehicle. Uh, and I mean that literally because it's Tom Hardy in a vehicle. Uh, it's called Lock. Um, it stars Tom Hardy as a man trying to get from location A to location B. He's talking on his phone. He has three different crises that he's dealing with basically on his headset. Mm-hmm. Uh, riveting. I mean, I know it's not a room, but car, but a, a moving car is basically a chamber drama too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's just stuck there in his driver's seat. Uh, it's a riveting 90 uh, minutes. Uh, but one of my favorites of, of the recent decades uh, that we should, we'll not be talking about here, but I want to briefly shout out, mm-hmm. is uh, a rare Ryan Reynolds dramatic role called Buried uh, in 2010. Um, uh, yes, at that time, that. I was working in a website called Insing.com and I wrote a review for this. And this is, uh, 
I believe like my only that maybe I've done like one or two like five star reviews like full score ones. Yep. Uh, I gave Barry like a a full five star review. It's about uh, Ryan Reynolds. He stars as a contractor in Iraq. Uh, who one day he's a truck driver basically in Iraq. Uh, and one day he wakes up inside a coffin, a wooden coffin with no idea how to get there. Uh, the action unfolds through you know the guy's BlackBerry, which yep. he uses to communicate with his kidnapper and the State Department. So um, a lot of you have seen Kill Bill Volume Two and uh, you know that scene of Uma Thurman in a uh, in a coffin. Imagine that, but for two hours and still good, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the kind of things we want to talk about this this uh, this week. Yeah, I totally forgot about buried actually. Yeah. Uh, and and really enough, you know, we already mentioned like Alfred Hitchcock's uh, real window, right? Alfred Hitchcock actually has done a bunch of single room things. You know? Yeah. Um, there is a movie called Rope, which is uh, really really good. Also set within a single room, uh, a quote unquote limited setting film, uh, and also a 1994 classic called Lifeboats, mm-hmm. uh, which is a curious psychological thriller about two men who decide to kill a former classmate just for the intellectual thrill of it. Uh, very interesting. Uh, but yeah, um, he has done a bunch of those, but Rear Window is his best. But we'll begin with 12 Angry Men, which uh, I have long considered since secondary school or whatever. Uh, <laughs> ho- however long I've been, I've been a cinephile uh, to be the, the, the greatest film ever made. It is a 1957 American courtroom drama, although it doesn't take place in a courtroom. No. Um, it is directed by Sidney Lumet and it is adapted from a 1954 uh, teleplay of the same name by Reginald Rose. Mm. The script is by Reginald Rose. His teleplay, I've seen it, wasn't that good. Uh, Sidney Lumet really elevates it with, with this film. Um, and in, in the form, as I mentioned, it, 12 Angry Men is sort of a courtroom drama, but it, in purpose, it's actually more of a, of a crash course in, in, the, in the American constitution, you know, that, that, it, that it promises defendants a fair trial. Yep. And a presumption of innocence, you know, it has a kind of stock simplicity to it, you know, and and apart from a brief setup in the beginning and an even briefer epilogue, the entire film takes place within the within a small New York City jury room on the quote unquote hottest day of the year, uh, as twelve diverse men from from different walks of life and from different class statuses debate the fate of a young defendant, eighteen uh, year old guy. Uh, charged with murdering his father. Mm-hmm. So the, the film shows us nothing of the trial itself except for the judge's kind of almost perfunctory board um, charge to the jury. Like, like his tone of voice indicates that the verdict is kind of a, of a foregone conclusion. Yeah. And uh, we neither hear the prosecutor nor the defense attorney. We only learn of the evidence secondhand as the jurors themselves debate it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, most courtroom movies feel like it is necessary to end with a clear-cut verdict but i feel like 12 angry men never states whether the defendant is innocent or guilty yep. it is about whether j- the jury has a reasonable doubt about his guilt um the the, the principle of the reasonable doubt is kind of the, the belief that a defendant is you know innocent until proven guilty mm-hmm. it's one of the most kind of enlightened elements of the american constitution um although many i guess americans and people outside also have difficulty accepting it um so this is kind of what uh, Twelve Angry Men is about. It's about the uh, it's about these twelve jurors, how they interpret the Constitution, and how yep. their different biases and prejudices may affect their interpretation of certain bits of evidence and testimony. Uh, I I found it to be a fascinating, uh, slim down economical film that focuses on 
the essentials of storytelling, which is character and dialogue. Mm. Uh, and, and that's why I feel like, you know, this, this film that lacks any sorts of bells and whistles, uh, I mean, there is flourish, and I'll talk about the camera work later. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, it, it is a, a bare bones kind of thing. And, and I, I consider this to be like the purest form of, of film and, and the best film that I've ever seen simply because it, it doesn't need much to, to stand out. You know? mm, agree. I totally agree. Uh, yeah. My, I think I, I watched 12 Angry Men around that same time, maybe like late secondary school, going on to JC, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and back then, like I was kind of blown away at just how much you could do with just dialogue. Mm-hmm. Well, I would, that was what I was focused on, and kind of rewatching this for, uh, so we could talk about it recently. You know, I, I'm still blown away. Like it is so good. You know, it is so finely tuned. Uh, in terms of like, there's nowhere to run. There's nothing to distract you, right, from exactly what's going on in front of the camera at any given point in time. Like every word has to be measured and weighed. Um, because we've got nothing else to focus on. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, it really does boil it down to what is. It, what the essential things uh, of, of storytelling need to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that sense, like it, it's a complete triumph in, in terms of like how someone should approach or so, how someone should look at, at uh, a chamber drama, right? Yeah, yeah. Like this is a film where tension comes from personality conflicts. Mm. Uh, it comes from dialogue. It comes from body language and not at all ever action. There's no action here. Yep. Um, where the defendants has been glimpsed only in a single brief shot, you know, where, where, where logic, emotion and prejudice struggle to control uh, the field of the narrative, you know, it is it's kind of a masterpiece of, of stylized realism. You know, the, the, the style coming in the way of the photography and the editing uh, comments on the bare bones of the content, you know, yeah. like um, one of the cute little camera tricks that I really enjoyed, and, and this is a very subtle camera trick, is where throughout the duration of the 95 minutes, uh, the camera... Uh, it starts wide, you get to see all 12 men uh, yep. in a single room. It already feels claustrophobic, but it slowly creeps in. It slowly creeps in. It makes the room feel smaller and smaller and smaller the longer it goes. Yeah. You, know, you feel, you see the perspiration on everybody's cheeks and brow. You you yourself feel um, bothered and hot, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, much in the same way that, that the the jury members feel as well. So but it it is like kind of a, a triumph in cinematography also, although it's not, Im- you know, immediately obvious. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. There is a palpable discomfort, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of like mounts on the way that, like, even later on when when the weather changes or uh, when they finally get the fan on, like, there is some sort of relief there, like mm-hmm. you know. And of course, within the story itself, they they also provide uh, moments of relief in the same kind of way, right? Just from the intensity, or or rather, just re- reflecting the fact that as human beings, there's only so much intensity you can kind of stomach at one go, you know, even yeah. in the jury room, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, I loved it. Like, I love the debate. I love the dialogue, you know. Um, it is, you know, like, it, it's, it's, not re- it's not really about solving the crime, this, this 12 Angry Men film, you know. Yeah, yeah the, the crime is there, the defendant is there, but it's more about the moral and ethical responsibility you have because exactly. the consequences of your decision it's as dire as it gets. Like, you're, you're sending a young man to die, right? Mm-hmm. To death row, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the, the movie is... is it's perpetually timely, actually. You know, if you live in any sort of society with capital punishment, yeah. Um, the the defendant, when we glimpse him, he kind of looks 
um, I guess vaguely ethnic, you know. Yeah. Um, but but no specific group. He could be Italian. He could be Turkish or Jewish or Arabic or Mexican. You know, uh, that that kind of thing, lah. But but he looks exhausted and frightened, and he looks like one of the people that. Uh, white America, which is what the jury was at that time, mm-hmm. uh, would be exhausted and frightened off. You know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like in, in the, because you know some jurors make make vague references to quote unquote these people uh, when referencing the defendants. Yeah, yeah, and I mean like we have one really kind of powerful scene with that, right? Where one of them goes on a whole, well, un un unabashedly racial tirade, right? Mm. Uh, and and um, in what is probably the most unrealistic or the most kind of like dramatized or melodramatic um, um, scene where the jurors get up away from him and face away from him mm. you know uh, because they simply refuse to to listen to to that tirade um, it, it really stands out just because that there, there is a moment in time I, I personally felt that it doesn't quite fit the general um, tone of the film right but it is no doubt very powerful to highlight that mm. Yeah, I think like it's not meant to be realistic as more of a, a a lesson in that you shouldn't. I mean, you know, there there is always the argument, especially these days, like that you should hear the other side out. Like, yeah, you know, the devil's advocate. There is always the other side of the story. What are the nuances, etc. Um, I I am personally a bit tired of hearing that because there are some things that are clearly black and white, and you should not acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is one of those like kind of clear cut cases. Like, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be open to debate. I'm not saying you shouldn't be open to seeing the other side. But yep. there are just some things that are just so obvious that you shouldn't acknowledge them. Like you shouldn't justify it with a reaction. You know. Uh, yep. and and in the way that the eleven jury members turned away from from the the racist juror. Uh, it, it was very powerful to me then. Uh, it is still powerful today, like, mm-hmm. you know? uh, and, and and in in a way, like you know, every single person who kind of lives and functions, I guess, in a modern society, not just in American society, kind of needs to watch this film because although it was made um, over fifty years ago, sixty years ago, seventy ish, I think, years ago, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's it's in black and white. Um, it, it still has striking relevance to the world today, like, You know, um, absolutely. It it, it kind of revolves around you know the opinions, perceptions, biases, and logic of twelve different characters who are who are kind of tasked with you know pronouncing guilt or innocence of a, of a young man like that they don't know about. You know, mm-hmm. so the the film explores the atti- the attitudes of each juror to their responsibility in the justice system. Um, however, this is kind of a, merely a, a metaphor for the jurors' attitudes to life, you know. So yep. through how they approach uh, the evidence uh, and the testimony, you kind of see uh, what their perspective to life is, you know. Um, each juror represents a, a characteristic behavioral trait that mostly aligns with their socioeconomic background, you mm-hmm. know. But we, we are given no detailed descriptions of the names, age, uh, or class of the jurors, but the occasional passing remark or conversation gives us a, yep. a clue to their profession and background, you know. So so this is the limit uh, of detail we are given about each character, which which constructs a vague sense of timelessness and universal applicability uh, of the jurors that, that extends beyond the 50s, uh, it goes before that and goes after that too. Mm. Um, so hence, the characters are kind of like constructed as, as these ambiguous, but ambiguous because they're accessible figures yeah. uh, for the audience to pro- to project their own meaning and understanding onto them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as ambiguous as each one is, right? Like, they're all archetypal in their own way, but at the same time, the characterizations that the actors take on are extremely specific, right? Mm. You got your, you got the ad guy, you know, you got your watchmaker, you got your stoic, and all of those things are there 
Um, mm. But the accessibility isn't taken away from the fact that like you have some really, really kind of like specific um, quirks, right? That each of them kind of have and way of speaking and it, how consistent that is uh, with what you can understand of their worldview or at least what is put on display for you to understand as their worldview, you know? And it's, it's so good, right? Just to have like 12, 12 men... Uh, these great actors just kind of like playing their part throughout the entire thing and to deliver such a strong message at the same time. It's such mm-hmm. a joy to watch cinema like this, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time when it was released, it was a surprise hit uh, because it, outside of the star Henry Fonda, uh, most of the cast weren't really uh, big names. Uh, they were character actors, like, yeah. uh, like, like um, that era's version of uh, 11 Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, were in. This <laughs> uh, cast uh, alongside yeah. big movie star Harry Fonda, uh, it had it wasn't a big blockbuster in the sense like it wasn't like Ben Hur or anything like that. It wasn't action oriented. Uh, it was a very nuanced character drama, and it was surprising that it became so successful. Uh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that is down to you know Lumi's uh, direction. You know, um, as as I mentioned, you know, like did you notice like the first third of the movie is kind of uh shot above the eye level yep. uh, and then the, the middle portion is shot at eye level and, and the third is uh, from below the eye level you know so it, it, in that way kind of towards the end uh, the ceiling began to appear yeah, uh, so yeah. not only were the walls closing in but, but the ceiling was as well uh, the, the sense of increasing claustrophobia did a lot to uh, raise the tension of the last part of the movie like, mm-hmm. uh, before you know the climax finally lets us breathe like, yeah. it's, a, it's a great textbook for directors interested in how um, I guess lens choices affect mood mm-hmm, you know, by mm-hmm. by simply like gradually lowering the camera or zooming the camera. Um, Lume is able to illustrate um, uh, another principle of of composition. Yeah. Know, a high a higher camera tends to dominate. A lower camera tends to be dominated. Um, so as the film as the film begins, we begin to look down on the characters, and the angles suggest that uh, they can be comprehended. Or, or yeah. you know, understood, you know. By yep. the end, they they loom over us, and we feel overwhelmed by the force of their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I mean, it's it's great use of close ups, uh, lens choices, yeah. um, yeah. high and low angles. Yeah, great stuff, man. Yeah, just the attention to detail, especially in um, in the accuracy of eye lines, right between cuts. You know, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of going like to and fro, and especially um, it used to great effect for the close ups nearing the end, right. Like, just how consistently accurate those eye lines are is actually really, really impressive. Because it really does make you feel like the, that conversation is taking place. It makes you feel like you're in the room at all times, right? Much in the same way that if you were seated there among these 12 men and different co- parts of the conversation are commanding your attention, right? The mm-hmm. camera work does the work for you, right? And it really does immerse you in that way. So, great stuff, great stuff. Yeah, man, you know. um, it, it like... Character-wise and story-wise, you know, um, towards the end, the, the kind of jurors kind of, they begin to face and admit the, the many reasonable doubts uh, about the case, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and the attitudes towards each other changes as well, you know, because at first, the jurors make kind of blanket moral judgments about each other and whole groups of people. Um, their, certain, their certainty about the truth of their own perspectives makes them hard and unkind. Uh, yet, as they begin to admit doubts about the case, it seems almost as if those doubts cause them to soften their stances mm-hmm. uh, and to admit their initial uh, perceptions might have been wrong about more than just the case. Yeah, um, yeah the, the principles each juror felt about certain felt for certain, you know, going in uh, are shaken not only by by the arguing and the evidence, but because the jurors are forced to face the doubts that they have hidden 
kind of behind their own biases, prejudices, and irrationalities. Yeah. Um, Jura number eight, played by Harry Fonda, is, is clearly the only one with like critical thinking. Almost as you mentioned, like another aspect that's a bit unrealistic about this is that Jura number eight, um, I find it hard to believe that he is not an amateur detective because yeah. some of the things he points out are ridiculous. But you know, whatever. He, he does demonstrate critical thinking to a room that doesn't demonstrate critical thinking. Like, and, and that was the point of it. Like. Yeah, yeah. Which is, I mean, like, it, it, he... Uh, no, he's not a foil. I mean, a, as the catalyst for the discussion, right? It's fairly interesting that, you know, I mean, later on, you kind of find out that he's an architect. But why would an architect be be uh, motivated to go and look for a copy of the knife, right? Mm-hmm. And like, no spoilers here, guys. It's 70 years old. If you haven't watched it already, then like, it's not our Yeah. Fault. Uh, you know, like things like that. Like certainly there are a lot of um, moments in time whereby the realization is kind of diegetic, right? Like it comes out mm-hmm. as as a process of the, the discussion or at least we're led to believe that like, through the script. Um, mm-hmm. and it's just that Fonda's kind of like very Socratic way of just kind of questioning and like kind of teasing that apart uh, would fall apart and be completely unbelievable if it wasn't for the fact that he rested on a very kind of uh, on moral ground, right? Mm-hmm. If we're going to decide a man, a young man's life, we should at least give it an hour and see where it goes from there, mm. right? Instead of just walking into the room and everybody just like steamrolling through that because as presented, the evidence seems to be against um, the defendant's favor, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, like all of that really is quite, it, it is extremely compelling uh, mm. despite the fact that you know there are moments in time where you notice that you need you know you need a smart thing to kind of wrap things up you need a you need a wisecrack here to kind of like you know um, add relief you need little little things to kind of get the plot moving as well yeah. but all in all it does feel extremely compelling and extremely natural for most parts yeah yeah I mean um, it's Interesting because, you know, like, of course, at the beginning of the film, like, the, the jury is 11 to 1 for guilty. And, yeah. and as uh, jury number 8, Henry Fonda, continues to make his arguments, you know, they slowly, slowly start to start to turn. Uh, and although, spoiler alert, all, all the members vote not guilty by the end of the film, uh, yep. the, the, play, the play's conception or the movie's conception of, of justice remains very complicated because while the jury has voted not guilty, they have done so not on the basis of having definitely proved the defendant's innocence, yeah. but rather because the case, the case against the boy was not beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thus, the play, uh, the movie portrays absolute justice as something that is beyond the reach of any jury. Yeah. Uh, all that can be achieved is, is the justice of reasonable doubt defined by the legal system. Uh, a definition of justice that is both less satisfying and more realistic because, you know, that is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's a definition of justice that allows and makes compromises for, you know, the types of fallibility and irrationality that that were and still are evident in, in the jurors and witnesses in any trial, including this one. Um, since many jurors were, in the end, trying their hardest to figure out what happened, the play also confronts us with the possibility that there is no room for an absolute idea of objective truth Mm -hmm. in any concept of justice where humans are involved but more importantly than coming to an objective truth is that you have to try Um, there is a lack of civic responsibility to most of the jurors before uh, the movie begins you know most of them kind of just 
you know they've taken been taken out of their lives they want to go home they want to go see a ball game they just you know they want they want to get out of this like this is not part of their lives they don't want to do this <laughs> but but this this movie implies that it is important for you to take ideas like this seriously and 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 to be responsible like, when it comes to uh your your role in society you mm-hmm. know? like mm-hmm. like it, it is more important than you think it is yeah yeah uh, i'm just curious his did you watch the 1997 version uh, another teleplay, yeah, not not as good. Yeah, yeah, I was just real. I just realized that I watched that, and I I, I remember James Gandolfini being in. Yep, yep. Yeah. So I I'm just curious, uh, because like I I don't think it worked as well as the original for sure, right? But it also had a much more diverse cast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of, of of like the background and the people they were representing, and it's interesting to me that the diverse cast didn't necessarily add anything to the original version or, or, you know, change any sort of perception from that. Yeah. Um, the reason Sidney Lumet, who I may remind you is a black director, yep. um, casted an all-white cast for this jury is because it would have been unrealistic for um, a diverse cast in that era, in the 1950s. Yep. Yep. Um, most probably, they would all have been white and he had to cast them all white. But what he did do, uh, importantly, was to make all of them um, ambiguous analogs to different classes of society. Yeah. Whereby if you're black or Latino or Asian or whatever, you can identify with like, you know, the lower class working man. If you're more affluent, you can identify with someone else. You know? So so they're all identifiable, um, not by race, but but in in, in, a, broad, in a broader sense. Yeah. Like you, you, you can identify that because you, you have been there there is a particular uh juror for every class uh, every every single class spectrum that there is. Mm, mm, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, similarly, for the same reason why he they, they didn't include females either, because like, at that time uh, there were no female jurors mm. in, in the American justice system. Yeah, yeah. It was just fascinating. Um, to yeah, to kind of make that because I do remember watching at least the nineteen ninety seven one, mm-hmm. uh, and remember thinking like, oh, okay, this isn't this isn't as good, uh, at all. Yeah, despite yeah. the fact that most of it was done shot for shot. Yeah, it was a, it was a TV uh, TV movie. So was the original uh, film la. Like uh, I I have, do have to say that this stuff and Man, this Sydney Lumet one yep. is a remake of the nineteen fifty four TV movie. Mm-hmm. The nineteen ninety seven TV movie is a remake of this one. Yeah. So this is this wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I call it original la, but it's because it's the most well known and it's the best done. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. So if you do want to watch Twelve Angry Men. Um, I know that a lot of like you know there are a lot of stage productions out there. There are a lot of remakes on TV, TV mm-hmm. movies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The one that you really want to watch is the 1957 one, yep. the Sidney Lumet one with Henry Fonda. This is this is the quintessential to me la, like chamber drama and and my and again my favorite movie of all time. And having seen like thousands of films at, at this point, <laughs> I, have, I have I haven't changed my mind on 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 this. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, it is it is an incredible film and um strongly encourage you guys to to check it out just because like it is essential cinema like you have to watch this to to kind of understand like why so many other films that come after right have have you know taken taken pointers from this yes yeah definitely man um now we'll move on to something a little more recent although not that recent this this movie that come out um two or three years ago i believe 2018 uh, 2018, two years ago. So, um, it is a Danish crime thriller, uh, co-written and directed by Gustav Moller, who, which was a, <clears throat> this was his debut feature film, mm-hmm. um, and it is an award-winning uh, film and often regarded as as the best uh, Danish film of all time. You know, um, it is, 
it's interesting. It it follows a police dispatch operator yeah. uh, in an emergency crisis as he talks a woman through being kidnapped. That is the initial premise of it. Like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to give more details, kind of spoils a very twisty narrative. You mm-hmm. know, um, this is such a taut and compact drama, but the amount of twists packed within this Danish film is incredible. There are two or three things say that you will not see coming. Details oh. about the police operator, details about the kidnapped woman. Uh, that really come to light later on that totally shifts the film on its head. Um, it's it's a very very sharp film and mm. and one of those um, uh, it it, it kind of harkens back in my opinion to the to the old days of the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties audio dramas just yep. so visually. Uh, yeah. Um, what what do you think of uh, Gustav's Moller, uh, The Guilty? Oh, man, I I was on the edge of my seat pretty much yeah. like. 10, 10 minutes in, I was on the edge of my seat, right? Uh, just yeah. how well it's told, how, like you mentioned, how taut, right, the tension is throughout the entire thing. Like, there isn't actually a true moment of relief, uh, almost from the start to the end, right? Uh, and of course, the twists just make it worse um, yeah. as it goes along the way. Like, it is so intense. Uh, it's really quite hard to peel yourself away from it just because you're afraid you will miss something. There's so little on screen at any given point in time, right? Like, mm-hmm. again, it's a chamber drama. Essentially, it takes place in, well, I guess two rooms, lah, right? Uh, but yeah. it, it, and it essentially only stars one person within your visual field, more or less, right? Yes. And because of that, everything boils down to the little details, right? The curl of his mouth, the sweat on his brow, Right, much in the same way, like watching Twelve Angry Men makes you feel like you are suffocating in the heat. You know, mm-hmm. um, you run through the same, uh, a, a similar kind of emotional gauntlet while watching. I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, while watching uh, Asker Home, right, like the main character go through a myriad of phone calls and conversations and and problem solving and and uh, you know, suspicions and doubts, right, like the mm-hmm. the the amount of emotion this man has on his face is insane, mm-hmm. right? And then on top of that, you need to be able to draw from, uh, in, in comparison to that richness, right, of, of his performance, you need mm-hmm. to be able to draw, like, uh, more more details and, and more impressions from voices that you whose faces you never see over the phone, mm. right? And a lot of the time, that is kind of like mask in the same way. You would expect a phone call to have the kind of distortions, the kind of muting that's going on, the kind of background noise that you would expect from a Great sound design. Yeah, ex- yeah, excellent, excellent sound design. Yeah. You know? So, like, with all these things, I, I felt very on edge most of the time, just not because of the premise of the story itself. But it's all these little things that I'm forced, or I'm rather I'm led to pay attention to in order to kind of, like, be invested with the story, right? Uh, and I think, like, it really... It really is a, a, a very powerful uh, combination that, you know, from beginning to end, right? Like, even till the final moments when, when all the twists are revealed, there's some sort of resolution going on. Like, even in the final moments, like, the story isn't done, right? The movie is done, but the story really isn't done. And you, you're kind of left to question, you know, what that possible ending might be because you've yeah. been so invested in this one man's uh, life for the entire runtime of 85 mm-hmm. minutes. 
right? And uh, it's very rare, I feel, uh, for a movie to be able to do that. And for it to mm-hmm. be a chamber drama on top of that, like, it's just like, it's, it's, it's no doubt the best Danish film that I've seen. And I mm-hmm. think it's no doubt that it's probably one of the best Danish films of all time. Yeah, I mean, certainly one-off, like, definitely. At, at least in recent memory and to my experience with yep. Danish film. Like, if anybody is out there from Denmark would like to defer, I mean, of, of course, you probably... Yeah, let us know. Let us know. We we will uh, go watch more Danish films. <laughs> uh, the actor that plays Asger Holm is Jacob uh, Sedergren. Uh, a lot of credit has to be given to him, obviously, that like, this film lives or dies on his face. Yeah. Uh, clearly, it does. Also, a lot of credit has to be given to Jessica Dinaj, who plays uh, Eben's voice, uh, who is a great voice actor here. Mm-hmm. Um. A lot of credit has to be given to both because it's basically a two-hander with one person. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very interesting, you know. Like it's the film more than just being a very uh, tight psychological drama and a crime thriller. It's also kind of about the way that um, Asger perceives the world around him. You know, yeah. Uh, like, like like how we perceive the world is is not in an objective, fair way, but in a way that it's like Thor and Greenman. Um guided by our own biases and our need to have purpose in the world, you know. So from the beginning of the film, we get the sense that Asger Holm, he feels frustrated and demoralized by being stuck behind a, de- a desk. Yeah. You know, he was formerly a street cop who has been demoted for unknown reasons, which will be revealed later, uh, to becoming a police uh, uh, dispatch operator. Like he's stuck behind a desk job because he can't use a gun anymore. Um, so he get, he's bored, he's, he's, he's frustrated and suddenly he's given a crime to solve uh, and a way to prove to himself that he's still able to do some good in the world. You mm-hmm. know? So the, the film does its cleverest work when it's playing with that idea. You know? um, yeah. Home sees the, sees the outline of the case that he wants to see. You know? yeah. like, it, his biasness is the, one that, is the thing that kind of leads us, the audience, down the wrong path, you know? and which gives us the twist later. Um, it, 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 he wants to be given the opportunity to be seen as a certain kind of hero, mm-hmm. which leads him to make some tragic assumptions and miscalculations. Um, the way he uses his authority to intervene ends up crossing mount moral boundaries, right? Yeah. And, and the, the guilty ends up exploring uh, in, intriguing, timely ideas about how the, the, the power handed to people from law enforcement uh, can lead to maybe sometimes hubris, arrogance, and violence because you know they are people too. Uh, who yeah. can be blinded by their own personal demons, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, right. It, it's a question of intention, right? Like, sure, great intentions, right? Like a woman's been kidnapped, you want to save her, you want to save the family, you want to prevent people from getting killed, all of those this good is- things. But it's all colored, right? Mm. From the context in which he finds himself living, um, and as more of that context gets revealed, you you start to you like his your understanding of his convictions right in trying to help solve this case start to wander a fair bit mm. uh, but what i found myself asking at the end of the film is like if i was in his shoes right like uh would i have made similar decisions mm. right because even though great intentions outcome not so great right definitely cross some kind of boundaries where he shouldn't have you know, mm. based upon the strength of his convictions. But yep. the choices he made and the assumptions he make are reasonable assumptions. Yeah, he actually does make some good uh, de- deductions. Yeah, right. And it is... it the, the, um, the crux of the twist later on, right, is really something that he had absolutely no uh, information about, mm-hmm. right? Like, there was no possible way for him to have that information or even acquired that information up till that point, 
you know. So mm-hmm. it, it became kind of a bit of a moral quandary for me. I was just mm-hmm. wondering, like, if I was in his shoes, would I have made similar decisions, right? If I was mm-hmm. a man, I used to be a street cop, all of that, this is the information provided to me, right? These mm-hmm. are the decisions that I could make that are within my duty or within mm-hmm. my power to do so. Would I have mm-hmm. made similar choices, you know? Yeah. And that was something that I had to mull over for quite a bit because, like, I mean, it is a it is a very very human story at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't agree with the outcome. I wish that it wasn't, uh, it didn't happen that way, mm-hmm. you know. But at the same time, I can see why it did, right? And it's very kind of it becomes so clear near the end that he was trying his best, um, despite the fact that you know he he couldn't lah, right? For all intents and purposes. There is an element that he wanted to redeem himself for something he previously did. Lah. Yeah. Uh and and in a sense that this is this story actually has two stories. Like it's it's a story about the kidnapped woman. Yeah. Uh, and the and the mystery behind it. It's also a story about what did this cop do. Yes. Uh and, and both of them intertwine lah, to to lead into the climax, you know. Um it, it's such a wonderfully written um movie um mm-hmm. and a, a lot of the strength is in in the the lead actor and in the writing as well like yep. in, in this in the single location thriller you know there is actually some surprising visual variety also to 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 what could have been a very dull um static film you know yeah, uh, yeah it, sure. it really does stand out that way as as, as well though. um yeah as you we were talking about with with the cop um he he does try his best. Uh, he he does make some assumptions. Uh, sometimes wrongly, sometimes correctly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but oh, he does also sometimes overstep the, the bounds of the law, lah. Sh- yeah. Shall we say? Yeah. And um, other characters who, constantly remind him about that. Correct. Right. Yeah. 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 Like you know, like for example, his uh his his drunk partner who was in 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 a bar that he he ropes in to break into a house, you know, that kind yep. of thing. Uh, I mean, uh, sure. Yeah, it does help him find evidence, but you know, like. What is his place to do that? You know, um, but it 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 really is in character for him to do that. You know, because once we learn about what he did, yeah, you 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 know what type of person he is, uh, and the lengths he's willing to go to. For he has a different kind of sense of justice, mm-hmm. uh, and he feels very helpless behind a desk. Uh, being of course, you know, a more action oriented street cop, uh, like there is a certain. I I personally have worked like police operator dispatch it's it's one of those things like when you are i i was in um the police uh, division uh, when i was in my national service in singapore uh so what they do is they rotate you around different positions you know? yep. so, sometimes you're uh in a cop car you know patrolling sometimes you're at the police post you know taking reports sometimes you're at the jails uh be uh guarding you know prisoners and stuff like that and sometimes you're in the police uh dispatch mm-hmm. and and it's in the police dispatch area that i feel like the most Helpless, like, especially when something um, urgent comes up. There's really nothing you can do except pass on the call, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you feel like you can't do anything. And this guy wants to do something. And it's in his, in his, in his nature to do something. Yeah. And it's also in his nature to go overboard <laughs> when doing that something. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, there are points in time where you are, as a, as a viewer, you do feel very annoyed with his righteous indignation because it gets in the way of actually being able to do anything. You know the way like he talks to the other people, uh, you know, to the disp- the other dispatchers and and things like that as well, right? How curt he can become, you know, how he orders them around, despite the fact that like he has no kind of like he's in no position to, right? Yeah. Um, and and it is frustrating to see that, uh, kind of like play out. You know, you're just like yeah, you're you want to help but you're not helping. Like you are in the way, you know, and Correct, that keeps yeah. the kind of popping up. And it, I guess 
it should be of no surprise at the end to us when the twist mm. happens. But yeah. it still takes you by surprise anyway. Yeah. Correct, yeah. Like, such a powerful film and a powerful performance from Jacob Sedagrin. Um, It's basically an actor showcasing a slow-motion meltdown. Yeah. Uh, and it's so beautiful <laughs> and, and striking to watch. Um, it, it's actually really rare for an actor to be given an opportunity to so completely dominate the film. Yeah. And, and Sedagrin really, like, takes every advantage of it. You know, this he realizes as an actor. I've never seen him in anything before, but like this is his moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm gonna shine in every second, damn it. And he does uh, Absolutely. Very good job. Very good job by Sidagrin. I have to be commend have to be commended. Uh. Actually he's done quite a bit. Oh really? You're on you're on his uh, IMDB or Yeah, I mean he's been doing stuff since two thousand and three. He's got like fifteen films to his name. And the guilty nice. is the most recent one. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, but like totally, totally, totally impressed by his performance like there's very like there's nothing you can fault about his performance really mm-hmm. right uh, and it, as difficult as it is um, in a chamber drama right all the focus is on you we had 12 men in one room and that was compelling yeah mm. what, basically well there were more people there la, but basically one guy in one room is really just quite uh, so good so powerful yeah, uh, a, a brilliant exercise and uh, a cinematic study intention mm-hmm. and sound design and how to make a thrilling movie with, with a very limited toolbox. You yeah. Know? Um, in fact, the film's restrictions may actually amplify the tension. Uh, so that, that is kind of the, the recurring theme la, for all the films and TV shows we're talking here. La. Like mm-hmm. how, what you do with your limitations can sometimes transcend what you do with, uh, if you're given all the money and all the resources in the world. Yeah. You know, sometimes maybe the limitations might help. Even more than you can, more than you think. Yeah, uh, I mean, I feel like a lot of the time for the films that we're talking about today, uh, yeah. the limitations are what motivates the action, right? Yeah. Like the frustration with your limitations is ultimately what precipitates action, uh, yes. from from that position of limitation and uh, with varying, you know, varying outcomes as we, as we will continue to discuss. Definitely. Um, next up, we move back to the 1950s uh, to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 uh, mystery thriller called Real Window. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written by John Michael Hayes based on a short story actually by Cornell Woolrich called It Had to Be Murder. Yep. Uh, and this film is considered amongst many people, including myself, mm-hmm. to be one of Hitchcock's greatest films. Uh, and if you know Hitchcock's filmography... Um, that's quite a high bar, like, you know. He has films like <laughs> Vertigo and and Psycho and and all sorts of things. You know? Yeah. Uh, but Ray Window is truly one of his best, like, you know. So Ray Window, the hero of Ray Window, is is a photographer, uh, who is uh in a wheelchair. Yeah. Uh, and like him, we are trapped with him too, like, From we are trapped inside his point of view, uh, inside his lack of freedom and limited options, you know. So, uh, he passes his long days and nights shamelessly maintaining a secret watch on his neighbors who. <laughs> You know, who he, he's he's watching them like, from his rear window, like what are they doing? What is this couple doing, etc. It's wrong, we know, to spy on others, but after all, like aren't we always voyeurs, you know, when, when we go to the movies or or when we look out the window like this guy. Here, here's a man whose job it is to observe people and he can't do his job. Yeah. Know? He's he's stuck with a cast on his leg in a wheelchair. All he has to do, all he can do is just watch his neighbors. So so here's a film about a man who does on the screen what we do in the audience, you know, through uh look through a lens into the private lives of strangers. So in a way, like this is this film is kind of a meta commentary on voyeurism and yeah. and, and, and you know, watching movies and, and things like that. And especially like I know reality TV wasn't invented back then, but on reality TV now <laughs> as well. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one of my favorite uh, takes on, um, you know, like try, trying to explore uh, how we indulge our voyeuristic tendencies, you know, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's like, uh, executed so skillfully uh, and, and it's so self-aware uh, and it's so well done in Rear Window by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, have you seen this movie before I recommend it to, it to you? I did watch it once but that was okay. like a long, long time ago in at the National Library when, you know, they had the VCDs and all of that and the TV set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was on a Hitchcock binge at that point in time so revisiting this it was actually really quite something Mm-hmm. Yeah, can I can I also just say that Grace Kelly is distractingly beautiful? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, like she's famously beautiful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like just distractingly beautiful. Every time she's in a frame, I'm just like, okay, uh, where are we again? What is what is going on in this film? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so like Real Window, I, I mean, I totally agree with you, right? Uh, just the the meta commentary here, because as as the audience, we are as culpable as as Jeff is, right, in his voyeurism. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Everything that kind of unfolds and everything that kind of happens, you know, we are taken along for the ride because we have no choice. In this particular case, right, um, we are stuck watching him watch the ball, right, yeah. and try to affect change from there, you know. And, uh, and because of that and just because of the way the film unfolds, right, like all the action that takes place outside of our control also gives us the same kind of feelings of frustration and helplessness. Uh, on his behalf, right? Yeah. But also because uh, we are at, uh, we are we are given to the will of the camera, right? And the whim of the camera that never actually leaves, um, you know, the apartment, right? Yes. So like we we only see, you know, what he it's possible for him to see um, with with his eyes or with the binoculars or with the camera, right? Yeah. And that is incredibly frustrating, I think, because a lot of film today. Right, the, um, feeds you a lot more details than mm. is entirely necessary. I think, right? Or you know, even talking about the fact that, like, just in general, film trailers today just give you more than you should be allowed to know before the actual movie comes out. Yeah. Right. So I think we are a little bit spoiled uh, in an age where information and uh, just the number of points of view that you could possibly access at any given point in time is much, much greater than what a film like Real Window allows you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, precisely, exactly, you know. So, this guy, Jeff, you know, he is the, he is the photographer that we're talking about. Um, he, he spends his days, as we mentioned, uh, becoming way too familiar with the other tenants who are, who are across the street from him. Yeah. That is, uh, he observes um, there is this uh, Miss Lonely Hearts who he calls <laughs> throws uh, dinner parties for imaginary gentlemen callers. You know, she's obviously very lonely. Yeah. Um, there is uh, Miss Torso who throws drink parties for several guys at the time. Uh, there is a couple uh, who, you know, who lower their beloved little dog in a basket to the garden. Yeah. Uh, there, there is a composer who fears his career is going nowhere. I uh, like... Although we are given limited information, we do get a sense of their stories, right? Yeah, yeah. And the most important of all the people he watches is this guy called Torvald, um, played by Raymond Burr. A man with a wife who spends all her days in bed and makes life miserable to him. You know, she's portrayed as a nag and he's always very upset Mm -hmm. about it. One day, the wife is no longer to be seen. And by piecing together several clues, he sees a saw, he sees a suitcase, he sees a nudie duck spot in Torvald's courtyard garden. Mm. Jeff begins to suspect that 
this man has murdered his wife. Yeah. And he he ropes in his poorness and his fiance <laughs> into this. Uh, and there there begins, you know, he's trying to solve the murder like, basically by himself. Everybody's, you know, including his friend who is a detective, says that he is just as overactive imagination. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Um, did you do you did you actually think that he was onto something, or did you think that you know, like he was just like being um restless? Um, I, I think midway through, mm. right? I, uh, and I'm of course going off the first time that I saw the film, right? I think midway through, I was convinced that something was going on, but it may yeah. not necessarily be as uh bad as he thinks it is, right? Yeah. Like it may not necessarily be murder. Uh, but that kind of like changes uh, as as we kind of go along, you know. Um, the ridicule that he faces in the initial stage seems entirely reasonable for a man who is stuck in a chair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but I mean, like as it kind of unfolds, uh, as his conviction goes stronger, uh, as as uh, Lisa, who uh, played by Grace Kelly, as her, you know, kind of egging him on, kind of grows stronger as well, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that the the way in which they go about um, uh, taking action from there, you know, uh, does make it more compelling, right? Like mm-hmm. the actions that they take make it more compelling for them to to take such drastic measures, right? Because no one needs to go and, you know, break into a man's house or anything of the sort necessarily to find evidence, right? They were just curious at that point, you know? Yeah. They had nothing to do with them and they were curious, right? Yeah, exactly, right? So from, from being curious to being ultim- uh, ultimately convinced that something was wrong, Right, yeah. like I, I, I think I kind of went along with that journey as well. And we have to remember, like he's a journalist, sure, right? Mm-hmm. But he doesn't really have the same kind of. He shouldn't be having the same kind of like compulsion to undercover criminal activity or to solve criminal activity as Asja did, right? In in the guilty, yeah, um, right. So like it does feel like it's not his place sometimes, right? And uh, plenty of his, uh, plenty of his friends, you know, tell him that. Yeah. In particular, the act, the actual detective involved. Uh, so I think it was only past the halfway mark that I was like, okay, yeah, I, I do think it is um, definitely more possible than not that something is run afoul. Yeah, yeah, you know, like, the, the thing is, like, we see what he sees, right? Yeah. So the conclusion he draws, we draw also, you know, it's, it's yeah. all without words because, you know, the, the images, the... The, the very brief glimpsing images that he 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 sees adds up to this montage of suspicion in his brain yeah. you know so a part of me also much like him wanted it to be a murder do you know what i mean yeah. like it, it may not have been a murder but because i'm watching a movie i wanted it to be a murder because it would be more interesting that way and, and like what does that say about james stewart's character <laughs> what does that say about us also yeah. uh, I, I think like in in a more meta way that, that's what the the movie was kind of driving at you know um it, it was such an interesting character study too of jeff who is not he like you say he's not a policeman he's nope. not a moralist even no nope. uh uh he's not even a do-gooder he's just a man who likes to look yeah there there are crucial moments in the film where he is kind of required to act and he delays you know not because he doesn't care what's happening but yeah. because like he forgets that he can be an active player he is absorbed in, in a passive role. Yeah. Um, significantly at the end when he is in danger in his own apartment, you know, uh, his weapon is his camera slash <laughs> gun, right? Yeah. So he, he hopes to blind or dazzle his enemy. Um, so like, uh, it's, it's it's a, it's a wonderful take la, on on people who like to look and don't do and yeah. and and the dangers of of drawing unfounded assumptions based on incomplete information. Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think 
I mean, he's not even an, like an investigative journalist, right? He's he's literally yeah. a photographer, you yeah. know. And and of course, you know, we can tie in into the whole fact that photographers, to an extent, are voyeuristic to begin with. As uh, we we can go down that entire argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Lisa does make a very like in the initial phase, especially when Boyle comes back with that evidence, yeah. Um, or at least like comes back with evidence that presupposes the fact that Anna is still alive or, or that Mrs. Torvald is still alive. Yeah. Uh, you know, she does say, I mean, like, we can't possibly be this upset about the fact that someone didn't die, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And just yeah. kind of, it, like, hits the nail on the head, you know? Yeah. Uh, my only kind of, uh, the only point in the movie which I just felt, in the, in the same way that as viewers, we want it to be a murder because then it makes this movie worth watching, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also found myself feeling similarly with when Lisa gets caught. Yeah. Right? Like, there's a... there's a le- Her getting caught and getting hurt holds mm. its own moral lesson there for Jeff. Yes. But he never learned yeah. that. Right? And, oh. I, found, and I found that frustra- frustrating despite the fact that it would have meant Lisa getting hurt. You know? So, like, it, we, even within the movie itself, there are instances whereby there's a lot more of the same... Um, Within the action itself, there's a lot more of the same lesson kind of being like reiterated there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you know we we are watching this from a place of helplessness as well, but at the same time, you know, like there, if the worst were to happen, that if the worst that we imagine should happen does happen, right? We are more compelled in that direction than not, uh, which is kind of fucked up. <laughs> Indeed, you know, yeah. uh, and and that's kind of the genius of the film because Hitchcock traps us into Jeff's point of view you know it feels like we are spying on our neighbours he, he traps us immediately yep. uh, and he makes us accomplices to uh, Stuart's uh, voyeurism you know we are long for the ride you know so like when an enraged man comes bursting through the door to kill Stuart like we can't detach ourselves because we looked too and, yep. and we share the guilt in a way that in, in a way we deserve what's coming to him right mm-hmm. um, brilliant film man one of Hitchcock's best uh, I mean everything Hitchcock's does is actually <laughs> genius, la. You know, you could you could make a, a a list of the top hundred Hitchcock movies, and they are they all could be the, every one of them could be you know the number one movie of all time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I just want to touch a bit on on Hitchcock's use of sound here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, of I mean, for, for those of you who are a bit more familiar with Hitchcock's work, he was a big fan of having diegetic sound, uh, mm-hmm. which means that the sound natural sounds that happen. All, um, within the world itself, right? And it's not something that you overlay with like with a soundtrack or anything of the sort, you know? Uh, but just how well done the sound was, like there is a sense of space that you get, right? From just listening to the sounds that are going on. In fact, you know, the barking of the dog uh, uh, across the courtyard, you know, the the music coming from the, the, the piano uh, and other people kind of playing music, the kind of like chitter chatter and the, the ringing of the phone and so on, like, it feels so incredibly natural mm-hmm. uh, and so well done. Like, there are very few movies in this day, day and age with all the technology that we have, right, that sounds so natural when they yeah. try to use diegetic sound, right? And uh, it is it really is a testament to, like, the attention to detail for that and how it makes you feel as an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, it's so good. It's so, so good. Um, it's very hard not to be impressed by that. Man, yeah, Hitchcock is also a master of suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, 
a lot of films that Hitchcock does can conceivably be considered uh, horror. Like. I mean, not this one, like, but yeah. they're all suspenseful. You know? yeah. um, Hitchcock once explained the difference between surprise and suspense. Like. You know, um, <laughs> surprise is a, a bomb is under the table and then it goes off unexpectedly. Yeah. That is a surprise. That is a, a jump scare, so to speak. Uh, we know, but when we know the bomb is under the table, uh, under the table, but it hasn't gone off. Yeah, that's suspense, you know. Yeah, <laughs> um, and a lot of modern horror or modern suspense movies tend to go for the shock, the jump. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think more recently, with the more artful horror and the more artful suspense films, they tend to go back to Hitchcockian roots. Yeah, uh, to bring back, you know, you know, the bomb is under the table, but we do not know when or or whether if it will go off. You know, that is suspense. You know. Uh, and yeah, like suspense invests you in in the film, mm-hmm. uh, and and it it banks in your memory and it plays your imagination. And so when the final payoff arrives, you know the the whole film has been uh, the thriller equivalent of foreplay. Yeah. Uh, and sim- similarly, <laughs> like uh, Ray Window is is like that. You know. Uh, finally, we're moving on to something very much more recent. Uh, although uh, Room One Four has actually ended already. Yep. Uh, Room One Four is a HBO anthology created by brothers Mark and Jay Duplass. Uh, it takes place in a nondescript motel room in a nondescript American city. You don't know where it is. Mm-hmm. It's just a motel room. So every episode takes place in the same motel room, Room One Hundred Four, with a different story. Yeah. Uh, and it's such an interesting uh way to limit your resources to limit you know the scope of it, mm-hmm. but uh a good way to explore different kinds of stories. You know? And, and I, I feel like one of the more imaginative uh, anthologies uh, out there, yep. you know, um, four seasons of creativity are now done. It's, it's up for you to explore on HBO Max or HBO Go if you want to. You know? um, so let's talk, talk a little bit about Room 104, its legacy uh, and, and things like that. You know? um, you're more, more kind of recent convert to Room 104. I think because like I recommended it to you, right? Yeah. Years ago. Um, you recommended it to me and you also covered two seasons worth of it at least on, on genre, right? Uh, and also, yeah. as the, also as a result of that, Hardy and I, um, we watched a couple of episodes uh, together just to get a bit of context despite the fact that we weren't following it oh, um, yeah. specifically. So yeah, I mean like in in our discussion of uh, what should we cover as far as chamber drama goes, I feel like Room 104 is a very modern, very recent and the only TV um, that we have, right? Uh, example of that that like I think is worth talking about. The fact that, you know, uh, the fact that there's a nondescript room and that anything can happen within that space like, or like mm-hmm. so many stories can happen in that space. And the breadth and width of what they actually try to do with this space is kind of mind blowing. So yeah, right. I am a recent convert. Uh, I have uh, we've got a whole list. You gave me a whole list of like recommended episodes. So instead, in, instead of covering all four seasons, uh, mm-hmm. I just decided to kind of go with that. And I can totally see why those are your favorite episodes. Um, but yeah, I am very very taken. I mean, of course, I've only watched maybe half of that list that you've given me. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the best of the best, right? Out of the, the seasons that have occurred so far. So, I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Um, but that is, of course, having it all filtered down to me. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm a bit, you know, when it comes to anthology, right? I'm yeah. a bit tired of genre-specific anthologies. You know, all of them have to be horror. All of them have to be social commentary, sci-fi. In, in the case of Black Mirror or in the case with, you know, some of the horror anthologies I covered on, on the last genre equality. Yeah. 
they're all very like genre specific. The beauty of Room One Hundred Four is that it, it can be anything you want it to be. Some episodes are just pure comedy. Some episodes are pure character drama. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some episodes are horror, slasher horror. Some episodes are thrillers. Some episodes are musicals. Yeah. Some some episodes is uh action. Yeah, some episodes are about uh time travel, dimension hopping, uh anything like any anything you want it to be like you know. So I mean, uh, what what were some of you of your standout episodes now that you've seen a a fair bit of Room One Hundred Four? Uh, I I do feel that the two musical episodes that you first introduced to me and Hardy, right? Mm-hmm. So that would be Arnold, and yeah. what's the Russian one? Uh, it it's um it's about. Uh huh. It's called Swipe Right. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it stars uh Michael Shannon as uh <laughs> as a Russian intelligence agent who goes on a Tinder date in Room One Hundred Four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the second one, you the the first one you're talking about is it's called Arnold. It was uh, written by Mark Duplass and Julian Was. Uh, and it stars Brian Tyree Henry, uh, aka Paperboy from uh, Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this is a a musical. Ghost story, shall I say, uh, mm-hmm. about uh, how Arno wakes up in this room. He doesn't know how he's there, but the way that he recounts his memories and how he got there is played out like a musical. Uh, yeah. Whereas um, the episode Swipe Bright has one particular musical <laughs> where he's trying to uh, impress his dates, uh, and then he comes in with a marching band and starts rapping about himself. Yeah. Uh, magnificent. Magnificent yeah. stuff. Like those two are, are, I think, by far my favorite. Um, yeah. just because like it's so inventive and it's so 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 good. I'm um, just the way they decided to go about it. Uh, then, in terms of the bizarre, I think Pizza Boy, which yeah. is, which is like the second episode that you're ever gonna come across. Pizza Boy is as bizarre as it gets, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much. And um, dra- dramatic wise, drama wise, I think, which is the one with the aspiring novelist. Uh, it's uh, season one, episode five. It's called The Internet, written by Mark Duplass again. Uh, it takes place in 1997, a period piece. It's about a young Indian man mm. uh, desperately trying to reach his mother over the phone uh, and to teach her how to use his laptop yep. to send a copy of a novel <laughs> that he has been writing, uh, which she accidentally deletes. It is one of the most frustrating uh, bits of uh one of the most frustrating things I've ever seen right, yeah. in, in my life, yeah. you know. I fucking love yeah. it. It's so, it's so funny and uh, it, it, it's become so heartbreaking right at the end of it. But like, it is, it felt extremely familiar, yeah. right? Uh, as I think, especially the two of us as elder millennials, like we've definitely come across situations like that. Mm, uh, yeah. You know, so like, I really, really enjoyed that um, as far as like the drama one goes. Um, what else? Have you seen uh, Mr. Marvel Hill? Yes. Uh, that's the uh, Peter Wilson. one, right? Yeah. Rain Wilson plays a, a guy who confronts his uh, third grade teacher yeah. uh, seeking a confession about their shared past. Again, uh, a, a, a real great twist at the end too. Yeah. Uh, there's that and um, Colin in uh, Hungry. Is it called Hungry? Yeah. Yes. Um it, it's it's uh, when two strange two strangers meet to fulfill a mutual fantasy. I won't reveal what the <laughs> fantasy is, but they are interrupted by a suspicious police officer. Um, interestingly, you know this episode is actually based on a true story. Uh, this is something that actually happened. Uh, so yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Like of all the like, you know, like if you were to play like fact or fiction, uh, what what stories are real? I would I wouldn't in a million years believe that this was the real one. Yeah, exactly, right. And I think like um, Mark Porsche is that his name? The guy who plays uh Colin. Yeah. Yeah, um, like just watching him in in that particular situation did not feel out of place at all, right? I was just like, oh my god, it's energy vampire. Let's just yeah. go with that. Yeah, yeah. Let's just go with that. This is just a continuation of that particular character. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, uh, it is so bizarre. It is so so bizarre. Uh, and um, to f- I mean, they do say that I-, I went and Google what the true event actually was because they did put it up at the beginning of the episode, mm-hmm. and then to read about it, I'm just like, really, seriously? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, real life is stranger than fiction sometimes. Yeah, de- definitely, man. Um, did you happen to watch uh, Artificial? Uh, written by Mark Duplass. It's about an android that attempts to convince a skeptical reporter about uh about her nature. Oh no, I didn't. I didn't catch that one yet. Ew, that's that's very good. Okay. Uh, you, you should you should catch that one soon. So, uh, it seems like you're in the about towards the end of season two, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't manage to catch any of the recommended ones from season three. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I've covered most of the recommended ones from season one and two. So about ten episodes in total. Nice, you know, there's there's a lot of good stuff here, man. Like, uh, one of my favorites from season three is an episode called The Plot. It takes place decades before the motel in Room 104 is even built. Oh. Uh, yeah. Um, it is the most interesting episode of Room 104 because it takes place on the plot of where Room 104 is. You know, like the the ground uh-huh. before before the hotel room was built. Right. Um, it is a brother and sister who own the hotel. Uh, and they have a tense meeting regarding development of the hotel, and it takes place on on the plot of ground that is Room One Hundred Four, mm-hmm. uh, and it is complicated by the arrival of um, a <laughs> demon, uh, and it sort of explains why a lot of weird things happen in Room One Hundred Four. Yeah. The, the kind of uh, a bit of a supernatural law to to kind of explain some some previous episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay, okay. That sounds like the most kind of like meta of the lot. Um. Does, yeah. does it tie into any of the episodes in in season three? Uh, not particularly, but it does explain why this particular spot is a conduit for like supernatural uh, things. Okay, okay. Yeah, like, I mean, I do have to say that most of the Room One of Four episodes have nothing to do with the supernatural, but yeah. the ones that do, you know, are explained here in in the in the plot, like, And also yes. because the plot is the one episode that doesn't take place in Room One of Four; it takes place on the ground where Room One of Four is. So it's a is a very clever way to get around that limitation. Oh, it's Luke Wilson. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, okay, cool. Yeah, I haven't touched that yet. I'm definitely gonna get onto that um soon. Yeah, any other standout? I'm I'm wondering if people want us to list the recommended episodes. Oh man, I could like um season three, episode three called Itchy. Uh, it's about a man with a mysterious skin condition. Uh-huh. Uh, and he's talking to his uh his his doctor over the phone like via video call. You know about what what is wrong with his skin yep. and it gets so bad that you know he, he starts pouring bleach on himself and things like that it's mm. one of the best instances of body horror I've ever seen with uh, an incredible twist at the end nice okay so that's three yeah uh, that, that, that might actually be my favourite of all of all the Room 104 episodes really the one with body yeah. horror well we're going to be covering yeah. more body horror soon so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah yeah, uh, I I think we we might find a way to to get the recommended episodes out to you guys if you guys are keen. To Definitely. Kind of that um, we might put it on our Facebook or something along those lines as a as a comment underneath this episode. 
Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I am I am a fair bit away through through that list already, and I'm thoroughly enjoying uh, the ones that his have picked out for me. Uh, I don't know if my impression would be exactly the same. Um, if I were to have to watch everything, right? Mm. Just because, like, it does. I mean, the hit rate seems pretty good, right? It's like mm. every other episode is is pretty good. Um, at least from what you're telling me so far. Um, did you did you catch season four? Yeah. Um. Well, Room One Hundred Four, like most anthologies, uh, is inconsistent. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it is great. A lot of it is bad. Uh, a few of them are in between. Um, I do have to say that for seasons one and two, the hit rate is extremely strong. Yeah. Um, it's mostly like for every three episodes, there'll be two strong ones and one weak one, mm-hmm. which is very good. Yeah. Uh, for season three, uh, the good the good episodes are great. Like they are better than anything in season one or two, but mm-hmm. the bad episodes are the worst. Oh my god! Sure. Okay. Um, season four, I have seen all of it. To answer your question, um, I didn't like it. To to be honest, like, I I didn't quite enjoy season four. Um, so if I if you were to watch Room One Hundred Four, I think you might want to skip season four. Um, mm. there is a particular reason maybe why the creators decided to it was time to call it the day. I think they are, they had kind of run out of their best ideas yeah. already. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so for anybody who's out there who's keen on checking out Room 104, um, we'll get the list of episodes to you. Uh, or you could retroactively just Google it as you're listening to us talk about it. Uh, but really, really fun. Um, some of the episodes are really just a whole bunch of amazing. Uh, and yeah. the, again, right, as with everything we've discussed in this episode of Behold, uh, it's a chamber drama. Well, a chamber show, at least. Yeah. Uh, and um, you know, it's its own it's its own form of art form that uh, is entirely enjoyable in a myriad of ways. Yeah, uh, and indeed, you know, like it it tells a series of short, very eclectic stories that you know more often than not hit their marks, mm-hmm. You know, and e- each new episode is worth it, even when I guess the narrative disappoints. You know, simply because you know there is such a variety of storytelling on display. Yep. Uh, they do such a good job of building anticipation. Uh, and at its worst, you know, uh, but still, each episode is about twenty minutes, so it's not a big waste of your time. Yeah. Uh, my 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 recent reviews of shows like Twilight Zone, for example, the new reboot uh, from from Monkey Paw Productions, Jordan Peele's one, it's is that the episodes are an hour, an hour plus long. You know, so yep. if they're not good, you're wasting an hour of your life. Oh yeah. If this one, if they are not good, if you're not happy with it, it's twenty minutes. You know, mm. it's it's nothing like it's, it. It passes by very quickly. You know, uh, and. It's it's such remarkable, refreshing television that like even when it's bad, it's not a waste of time, and when it's good, which is often, yeah, uh, it is very good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, strongly recommended, uh, from both of us. Um, yeah, yeah. Definitely, man. You want to do some interesting TV? Yes. Uh, Room One Hundred Four available on HBO Go or HBO Max. Uh, uh, season Four is still available. It's still running right now on uh, HBO, so you can watch it there. Uh, Rear Window, The Guilty, and Twelve Angry Men all available on all sorts of VOD platforms. You know, I'm assuming most of you have Amazon, so go go watch it on Amazon. Uh, I'm not sure if any of them are on Netflix. I don't think they are. Uh, no, uh, I don't think so. Yeah, but you know, like these are decades, uh, half a century old films, and some of them, you know, and one is like three years old. So, you you could find them anywhere. They are available on DVD, Blu-ray, mm-hmm. uh, and and any sort of VOD platform that you have, like you know, you if if you want, you can rent it. Uh, so yeah, um, we'll be coming back to you in two weeks' time with the next episode of Genre Equality. Yep. Uh, where we'll be talking about, uh, I I guess our main topics will be the Demon Slayer movie, Mugen Train. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the, the first ever feature film with uh, 
with Demon Slayer. Uh, we'll be talking about the Hulu's reboot of Animaniacs. We'll be talking about Brandon Cronenberg's uh, second film, uh, trying to live up to his uh, father's <laughs> uh, Brandon Cronenberg's legacy with body horror. Uh, it's a new film called Possessor, which is out now on VOD on Neon. We'll be reviewing that. Yep. Uh, as well as many other films. Uh, and for next month, our episodes of Behold will be, will be covering uh, the best of the year, uh, more of, more of a roundup rather than uh, a thematic thing. Yep. So um, for the first episode of uh, December, we'll be talking about the best TV shows of the year, specifically the best new shows of the year, the first seasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second one, we'll be talking about uh, best films or and, and things like that. Lah. Um, so yeah, um, I've already co- sort of uh, told, Isa's, uh, told Isa what... I think mine is going to be. I might change one or two here and there, yeah. uh, but I haven't decided yet. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I when, need whenever... to go so I'll let you know. <laughs> hey, there's, there's plenty of time. No worry about that. Uh, and yes, yeah, if you want to listen to uh, Behold and Genre Equality, we are available right now also on Singapore Community Radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, our past few episodes have been on there. Otherwise, you can check out uh, Mixcloud on Genre Equality and our Facebook backslash Genre Equality podcast to check out, you know, Everything that we have. Yep. Uh, so yeah, um, till next time. This has been Hit Zero. I'm Aisa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.